You're listening to the EU Mentorship Stories from the Western Balkans podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the European Liberal Forum, the Boris Divkovic Foundation and D66 International. We do hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this fourth edition of the Stories from the Balkans podcast and the first of the year 2021. Uh, today we should be talking about the European Union and Western Balkan relations and connections, in particular any obstacles that Western Balkan countries are faced with from the EU perspective, while also taking a look at the current situation and their perspectives. Uh, my name is Andrew Burgess, Senior Political Advisor for the Alde Party, and I'm delighted to be joined for this conversation today by two friends and colleagues from the region. So Teresa Reiter is a journalist by training and used to be a policy advisor for EU and security policy for the Austrian Liberal Party NEOS. She is now a visiting fellow at the Institute of Human Science in Vienna, and she is currently looking into the EU's role in why Western Balkans enlargement is stuck. She is also the co-host of the Liberal Defence podcast, The Defence Cafe, and works on political education projects. I'm also joined by Yasmina Merso, who is the project coordinator for the EU Mentorship Project. She is a policy developer and an international officer of NASA Stranka, the Social Liberal Party from Bosnia and Herzegovina. She describes herself as a liberal policy nerd with a, with a formal educational background in pharmacy and a passion for storytelling. She was an elected municipal councillor in Sarajevo and is currently the Deputy Secretary General of the Liberal Southeast European Network and a local and international capacity building trainer. Her special interests include health policy development, gender equality, Bosnian and European politics, and the EU's enlargement policy towards the Western Balkans. Teresa, you were involved in the first uh, initial first year of this project uh, back in 2019. Uh, maybe you could start by uh, expanding on how this project came into being and uh, where we are today. Um, I have to say that uh, I was not a part of uh, the original idea of establishing the, the project. Um, it was uh, the, the NEOS um, Party Academy was involved and they asked me whether I would like to do a workshop um, for some colleagues from the Western Balkans coming over to Vienna. And uh, it was mostly about um, self-perception uh, of the Western Balkan countries and um, the questions of what are you bringing to the table when you're joining the European Union one day uh, and um, to to my shock I must say uh, it was very difficult for the participants to come up with something um, uh, I, I realized in this moment that that uh, all of these people who devote more of, most of their time to to um, improving living conditions in the countries where they're at um, do not know how to talk positively about their own countries anymore uh, when they're talking to European Union uh, citizens. So um, for me, this this was like, I, I, I sense that this would become a huge problem because how are you going to lobby uh, for your membership in, in a union of other, other states if you cannot tell anyone about the advantages of having you there? So, um, and, and then somebody from Nasha Stranka, I think it was Sabina Tudic from, from, from uh, the, 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 yeah, from Nasha Stranka who made a joke and she said, we shouldn't only talk about what Bosnia has to do to join the European Union. Maybe we think about what the European Union would have to do to join Bosnia. 
Um, and that's when I had the idea of, of doing something like a reverse progress report. Um, ask uh, people from the Western Balkan states that are involved in policymaking um, what, what they would change about the enlargement process. And we also ask them to be very constructive and, and be very um, strict to themselves, but, but also fair and say, like, this is not going to work because uh, in order to, to give a bit of a, a manual, a handle to, to European policymakers and um, in order to have a voice themselves at the table. That's a very interesting question indeed. Um, you mentioned the, the, the report. Uh, Yasmini, you were involved in the report for this year. Um, as, uh, it was entitled European Voices in the Western Balkans, uh, a liberal perspective on enlargement for the, of the European Union. And it's uh, brought together the insight of uh, policymakers from four of the Western Balkan countries, so namely Bosnia and Herzegovina, Montenegro, North Macedonia and Serbia. Um, perhaps you could briefly present the report and you know, maybe there are some interesting findings that you, uh, that you found already from this process. Thank you, Andrew, and thank you, Teresa, uh, for this uh, great introduction. As Teresa mentioned, the idea with the report came by uh, in 2019. We were trying to discuss this, this way of approaching and com communicating liberal views, uh, but also communicating our countries uh, and, and promoting them inside the European Union, because uh, we have this syndrome, I don't know what to name it, but we are so much criticized that we actually forgot to tell nice things about ourselves. And the citizens are also very unpleased with the current governments that they only know to criticize their own country when they go and talk to EU nationals or EU representatives or EU officials uh, or anything in that sense. So politics is just a dirty word and we are all trained to think negatively when talking about our own countries. And we wanted to change that. The project uh, developed from this stage to an ambition that we want to actually try and influence something. And using party politics in Brussels, since, since the parties are all the members, uh, we said, okay, so we have these reports, we have these views, uh, we want to communicate them to decision makers. So uh, the next step of the project would be to create a network of people who would like to listen to our voices, who would like to see a different kind of perspective. Because sometimes uh, for a lot of MEPs or EU officials or even officials in member states, the only information they get when talking about enlargement is from uh, the reports of the European Commission. And those reports are mainly information that are very uh, diplomatic and it's okay they're supposed to be but we wanted to create a platform uh, to say the things that you cannot say in the official report uh, so that they can get a, a feeling on what liberals are actually doing in the western balkans and this report in 2020 it, well it was kind of similar to do to the previous one, previous one that Teresa developed but it also um, offer this kind of perspective. Okay, uh, the report for Bosnia and Herzegovina, for example, says no progress. But there are some things going on in the background that if you take a closer look, especially as liberals, it's 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 very interesting. The elections in Mostar and how they came to be and Irma as vice president fighting for them and lobbying in Brussels and then uh, actually reaching Varheli, Commissioner Varheli, and then he actually 
uh, uh, talk to Sattler, uh, who is the, the EU ambassador, and he made some pressure, and it was all this kind of uh, shadow process going on. And then also um, the preparation for the local elections, where also Nasha Strankova's president became the mayor of, of Sarajevo Center, and we came were in government, and we were not in government, and now we're in government again. So it's like there are some changing processes happening. It's just that slowly, and it's you just have to take a look at some details. And also Montenegro has a very complex situation right now where we have uh, criticized Milo a lot for uh, a lot of things, which is, yeah, uh, it was it was, it was was something that should be criticized. And now you have a government that is trying to offer something new, but then again, uh, it's bringing other foreign influence back on the table that were kind of beaten by Milo's, Milo's government, Milo Djukanovic's government. So the EU's position is now, again, a bit weaker in Montenegro. So these are all details that EU officials don't know, and maybe they should not know. It's not something that they can find out by themselves, but we, we wanted to offer that kind of different perspective. Yeah, if I can add something to that. I mean, uh, what she said about um, the progress reports by the European Commission. Um, it is true that that uh, not only EU officials, but also national um, uh, members of parliaments, um, national civil servants in ministries uh, rely very heavily on the progress reports of the European Commission. Now, they are not dead. They are long. They are looking at a lot of uh, policy sections there. But the thing is, um, they are not neither this nor that, right? So the, the language is, is either very diplomatic uh, so uh, it allows for for um, autocratic leaders in the Balkans to to instrumentalize it and say like look the European Union has said such nice things about us we're on a good way and uh, on the other hand it allows for member states in the European Union to list all the shortcomings and only the shortcomings so it is not really a good instrument for anyone and for the voter in the Western Balkans and the voter in the EU member states it is the wrong kind of text. They will not understand what it actually says about the situation the countries are in. Um, so, um, and Robert Fala, our colleague from, from D66, who was also involved in the project, uh, said at the beginning, well, you have to understand that the audience of the progress reports are not only the Western Balkans governments, but, but have a lot um, more audiences and are also there to hold on to the enlargement process and make people see that something is happening here and there. Uh, but the thing is, um, for a while now, I believe that these progress reports have not really fulfilled this task. So you can neither get all the information you need to improve enlargement process, you cannot get all the information to, you need for, for um, making uh, an informed uh, choice of who to vote for in the Western Balkans and so on. So uh, additional sources there are very much needed, uh, original voices um, from the region that are not uh, only uh, government control uh, voices, um, we're really missing from the debate. And um, that's why we think uh, our both and, and everyone who was involved was really happy to that also these, these reports um, were being heard uh, in the European Parliament, in the Renew Europe group and that we made some steps forward in, in the sense that um, people who deal with enlargement policy now look around a little bit for who else they could ask except for the um, progress reports of the Commission. 
Indeed, I think you make an absolutely excellent point there. I mean, I find by reading some of these progress reports, they can sometimes feel very institutional in language. Um, they're very disconnected from, um, from, from the ground. And these reverse reports in the way that they're put together and uh, the contribution has come from the other way around. Now, they do feel a bit more personal and they add a bit more extra value. Um, do you both, are either of you aware of the reactions in uh, Brussels or in the policy making circles on the report? Uh, do you know if they've been well received? I have, um, I know from, from um, different um, members of the European Parliament that they have received and read it. Um, they, um, I, I had some interesting conversations with, with other people who read the report on the fact that um, the European Union often seems to believe that they have to stick with, um, with governments that develop in an autocratic way or in a very corrupt way or in a, very, in a way that is very contradictory to EU values because they don't, every other alternative partner they could find in the Balkans would be worse. And part of the reason why we did the reverse progress reports was also to show that there are alternative partners that are dedicated to, to liberal values, to, to the values of the European Union. And they might be small, but with a little bit of support and a little bit of inclusion in, in, in the whole uh, context and conversation, there might be other people we can work with. Um, and I think this effect has, in, in fact, uh, taken place. I think more people know who Nasha Stranka is now, for example, more people know that there is a Liberal Party in North Macedonia and, and, and so on. Um, some of the participants, like Jovan Jovanovic from, from, from Serbia, um, have used this occasion to also present themselves as the experts they are and, and I think are being contacted a little bit more often on the subject now. So this really um, met the, the, the intention. Well, also, we've kind of uh, developed the project a bit more uh, in the past year. Uh, we also intended to actually uh, present it to the, to the MEPs. So when we created the final event where we presented the project, we actually sent an invite to different kinds of people who were members of certain commissions or other bodies within the parliament who are related to uh, enlargement policies and foreign policies of the EU. Uh, there were not so many MEPs, there were some of them who are consistently engaged in the topic and this was a bit discouraging but uh, I think that every time we make a step forward it, it, it's something good. So I will keep insisting that um, whenever they, Bosnia is, is or, for, or Serbia or any other Western Balkan country is the topic of discussion in the parliament, they have someone to reach out to. And this has actually happened uh, when the, there was a report in Bosnia uh, in the parliament, in the European parliament very recently. and. MEP staffer uh, for the for MEP Clement Grosli from Slovenia actually contacted Nasha Stranka and asked for some amendment ideas on the report. And um, I thought that was that was something that we wanted to achieve, and it was good because they were at the event and they pledged to help and to be the voice of the Western Balkans. But I would I would really love more. I mean, this project is supported by our partners in the Netherlands, but it's not just the Netherlands. I would actually want to get more of the politicians and MEPs from the countries that are not so pro-enlargement involved in the project because yes we have the same uh, MEPs who are interested in the topic but uh, when it comes to hold, halting the process um, some 
political figures in the EU just know how to halt it, but they don't get engaged in actually mending it or making it better or actually just advising anything on the topic. So that would some, be something I would like to, to change in the future. I also think that, um, that the real barrier is not the European Parliament, it's the national parliament. So since we still need unanimity for enlargement questions, uh, and not only in the question of accession directly, but also in, in, the, in the points of order in this whole thing, um, you always need unanimity to even uh, uh, decide which topics to talk about with the, with the countries that want to become part of the European Union. So um, what we have not yet achieved, I believe, is to bridge the disconnect that exists between the Western Balkan states and national parliaments within the European Union. So the next goal, I think, would, would be to get the voices of the Western Balkans to, to um, national policymakers uh, that deal with the questions of neighborhood policy, enlargement foreign policy, um, and also other questions of, of cooperation, like, for example, public transport uh, would be a big topic for, I believe, Hungary, Austria, all the, all the countries in the direct neighborhood. So um, that is where we, I think, need to go next. And these are the people who we have to interest for this next. Maybe this is a good segue to bring in your current project then. And maybe this is one of the uh, your thesis in, in how um, uh, you've written that the EU's historic role in, the, in Western Balkans enlargement is, um, is stuck. And you're currently working on a project uh, to examine this in greater detail. Um, what, I mean, is that one of the reasons that's led you to this view? Um, what can you tell us about your current project? Yeah, so my current project at uh, the Institute of Human Science in, in, in Vienna um, was originally um, ha had a much bigger scope at the beginning. Um, I wanted to really look at why the Western Balkans history, especially the wars in the 90s, are not considered to be part of European history. So if you think of um, EU officials talking about European history in big speeches, they always talk about Schumann, they talk about um, how the institutions came into being, they talk about how it is the biggest peace project that ended war in Europe, and then you think, wait, did it? Because it didn't. Um, but um, the, the Balkan wars um, are rarely mentioned in this context um, to be part of European history. Um, neither is Ukraine, uh, the conflict between Ukraine and Russia. Um, neither is, I don't know, the intervention in Libya back then. So it, it is not, it is a history of institutions and not, an instit uh, not a history of, of the things that happened while these institutions uh, already have been in place. So I was looking at that because I also felt this is a lack of, of, of mutual respect uh, in, in a way. So um, because it is not recognized as part of um, things that happened within Europe, um, it, it, it ignores, I mean, if, if the Western Balkans are part of Europe, as we always say, you know, like a natural part of Europe and everybody always says that, but then you have to treat them this way. So I'm currently looking into why, for example, the Western Balkans uh, wars of the 90s are not being taught in Austrian schools or rarely being taught. Um, the question, um, I put uh, the question forward to, to, to teachers and uh, also to the Austrian Ministry of Education, whether there had ever been a debate on that. 
um, civil servants told me that there had not been a debate on whether to include them. The curriculum allows for it, but it doesn't make it uh, obligatory. So uh, it's up to the teacher. And the teachers I talked to said they would like to cover it. They have very, very little time, but they would like to cover it, especially with classes that have uh, kids from, from whose parents are from the Western Balkans um, who came here as a Gastarbeiter or uh, something else or as a refugee during the wars. Um, but they, they lack training and they let, lack access to, to um, sources they can trust and materials they can, can use during class. So what I'm now doing is trying to, to evaluate the needs of the teachers, what exactly it is they need, and then make a suggestion for uh, further training and collect sources they can use uh, together with historians at, at the universities and also give them a bit um, the opportunity to, to compare different views from different parts of the Western Balkans and make it a discussion um, to put this actually um, on, on the historic map in Austria, because Austria is even more connected for many reasons. Uh, there are still up to 700 Austrian soldiers in Bosnia and Kosovo at this moment. So um, we have a reason to care for it. And I'm sorry, I'm taking a bit long, but uh, there's one more point that I wanted to make. Um, the, Austria is one of the biggest supporters of Western Balkans enlargement, um, but this is on a, on a politics level, right? So the voter is not necessarily one of the biggest supporters of Western Balkans enlargement for different reasons. Um, but the thing is, if po politicians try to sneak the issue behind the back of the voters, this is not going to work because far right groups will instrumentalize it shortly before the election and, and it's not going to work. So you really have to apply to, to um, the uh, appeal to the, the, the opportunities, the geopolitical opportunities and advantages that the European Union has. Uh, from doing this, and for that you need a bit of a, a groundwork of understanding of what this part of the world is and how it is connected to us. Yeah, that's a very particularly interesting point. I mean, I'm, you, while while you were talking, I was reflecting back on my own uh, history studies while at school, and it's true the extent to European history. Uh, certainly, when back in the day I was uh, going through school, you know, we were taught about the World Wars and how. Uh, the British tri triumphed over Germany and upheld the European morals and values and things like this, very much flag-waving. Um, yeah, and it was noticeable, I mean, uh, quite recently I visited the um, the European House of History uh, in Brussels, um, and it's, it's, it's a very good point. I mean, there is a small section right at the end on the top floor of the sort of modern history, and there is a section on the siege of Sarajevo, but uh, over the course of five floors, indeed, it's it's not as um, prominent. Uh, Yasmina, uh, ask on this. Um, what any views on this? I mean, how how was the? Teresa made a very good side? point. Yeah, Teresa made a very good point. Um, the thing is that whenever we try to address the issue of perspective or this perception of how the EU views, well, the, the EU citizens view the Balkans and vice versa, it all comes down to a communications problem, like a PR problem. And the EU institutions have a very big problem with communicating EU values and what the EU actually does. 
So the perspective from the Western Balkan citizens towards the EU is like, it's this one big person who just rules over things and just says, no, you are this, doing this badly, you are this, doing this wrongly. And it's, uh, it's not, they don't even understand the procedures and who is blocking what and what, who they have to reach. And it's like a very complicated thing. And it's not just the Western Balkans, actually. I think only us EU nerds and people in the Brussels bubble are actually familiar with what's going on. Even the, the regular EU citizen is not aware of the importance of the union, of the geopolitical importance. And it has not been communicated to them. They don't have an emotional connection to the idea. They just have uh, they just view it as a bureaucracy. Uh, it, I always uh, draw the parallel to how we feel, like even here in the European Union or, or in Europe in general or anywhere in the world, towards the US politics. We get pretty emotional. We get much more emotional when what's going on in Washington than what's actually going on in Brussels. And that's a PR problem. And the EU is actually losing a lot of its strength due to, to, to bad PR. Uh, and it's not just, you just have to be a bit more creative, you have to be more innovative to to communicate the idea how uh, we cannot do things by ourselves in in, in Europe on the geopolitical uh, playing field. We just can do it together as as one Europe. And and I know you, Andrew, also can relate to this because of what happened after Brexit and uh, how the, the, the UK has been excluded out of the team. But we cannot do it like alone uh, by ourselves, any country. Uh, it's it's a big, big playing field and there are a lot of actors. And especially in this region, they're quite intervened. Um, we have a lot of Russian influence. You can now check out the vaccination, how it's going on and Serbia. It's just amazing. I mean, Vucic is an amazing example of, of, of uh, the region. Like he represents all the complexity of the region. I was uh, commenting uh, with somebody the other day how he donated uh, several thousands of vaccines to North Macedonia's Prime Minister Zaev, but it was very it was a very strong political diplomatic uh, message because he actually chose the Pfizer vaccines. In Serbia, you have can choose between the three vaccines: you have the Pfizer vaccines, you have the Chinese vaccines, and you have the Sputnik V vaccines. And he gave the Pfizer vaccines to North Macedonia to say, okay, we are giving you the vaccines, the EU says they are okay, but we are the ones who are giving them to you and not EU. It's an amazing political play if you think about it. And I don't think that anybody has has paid that much detailed notice to what's actually happened there and the vaccination rates, everything that they have done wrong in the past year, they are now fixing with the, the higher vaccination rates. And it's, it's a play. And I think uh, there was some good things done I think the, 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 there was this remark that uh, uh, Ursula von der Leyen made uh, via the, related to the Russian vaccines. That she said, okay, but something is wrong. Why is the vaccination rate in Russia so low when you are giving away these vaccines and stuff like that? That was a good, good thing. We need more of that sassiness because we like to be on the winning side. I, us as, we as humans, it's, it's good. We want to see the Europe strong and big and we feel that it's not and instead of actually coming together we look for uh, for someone to blame and that's brussels and i think that it, it's a pr structure that that strategy that should be further developed in my personal opinion yes yeah, certainly and the the inquest will will take place in brussels on the pr during the pandemic and uh, now, whether the European Union played a, a strong role in coordinating the purchasing or um, 
uh, bearing in mind that health matters are still a national competence. So there's, there's an ongoing fight between whether it's the European Union or it's the national uh, states. Theresa, any thoughts? How um, has the pandemic affected uh, this PR game? Um, I think uh, what Yasmina just described um, also um, really much um, reinforces something that a study by the Open Society European Policy Institute and DEPART has found. So after the, the French veto against North Macedonia and Albania um, accession talks, uh, they looked into whether or not it would be uh, an argument to vote for another party um, if if uh, France had, had uh, voted in, in in favor from 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 the beginning, so um, there is this this feeling that um, the French, while some of their criticism was right about the enlargement process, uh, did it because of the local elections in France because they were afraid that they were going to be punished by the voter. So uh, this this Open Society uh, Policy Institute looked at into how French voters actually feel about uh, the whole thing. And most of them said that it's not very salient. They said uh, three in four people said they don't believe it would affect their lives if the Western Balkan countries joined. So it wasn't what we originally expected, that people just, uh, I don't know, are racist or afraid of, I mean, um, work immigration was an issue, but not, not an issue to completely oppose for most people. Um, but uh, the reason, um, they opposed it still in a way was was not um, was not because of the Western Balkans. It was because uh, they lacked um, trust in the European Union's uh, management skills. Um, they lacked trust into the future of the, of, of the European Union. And that is what you said about the PR problem. We don't only have that abroad and outside the European Union, we have it inside the member states as well. So if, if voters in national states oppose Western Balkans enlargement because they do not believe that the European Union uh, future is, is, is secure enough for everyone who is already inside, um, then we have a, a problem of a whole uh, different, it's, it's a whole different kind of animal, right? Because then the answer is not anti-racism and, and you know, explanations about the Western Balkans. Then the problem is to be fixed elsewhere with ourselves, with our structures. And um, this is actually also something that I'm trying to, to um, address with my project here at the IWM. Um, uh, one reason why I believe we should look at this history as our mutual history is because it tells us something about the shortcomings of our institutions and our processes that we have to fix in order to prevent stuff like that happening in the future. For example, if something like, um, I don't know, if there was a, a genocide uh, threatening to happen in front of our doors today, we would still need unanimity to act and it would take longer time uh, than it takes to take a human life or many human lives. So this is something that I wanted to show as well, right? There are reasons for us. It's not a charity issue for the Western Balkans, you know, to include their history in European history. It's not something we're giving to our neighbors uh, in order. It, it's something that we need ourselves to fix the stuff that is broken or was broken to begin with and needs to be uh, developed further. Yes, yes. Uh, also, I like how you, how you compare it to a whole different animal because it would actually do a lot of things if we found the head of that animal. And I think like if 
if the voter, like you said, the voter in France or any other uh, European member state that's opposing the enlargement, could actually feel the importance of just close, just like closing in on the territories of Europe and being all together, they would actually support it. But it has not been communicated to them as important. It's not been communicated to them on a geopolitical scale because uh, we are. It's just too complicated for them to, to actually feel. And I guess that I think it's it's the rely. I think that we should just start from Brussels and then national and all the national political actors, and it would spread to the Balkans. So that head of the animal, this narrative, it, it's it's a narrative you have to create. So that would be the actually first step. And the narrative, it would it would spread. And it would actually change a lot of the perception, I guess, because we have different kinds of narratives acting, especially in our region right now, who are anti-EU, who are either, okay, now uh, Brexit has happened and we have to turn to the US and the UK only, that's the pro-Western narrative, and you have the pro-Russian narrative and the Chinese are here and there appearing, and it's, it's a very complex region. And if the EU loses its narrative, and I'm afraid it's it's on the brink of actually losing it here, and I'm not even sure that it's 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 stable out there in the EU, I think we're in big trouble. Those of us who actually feel that that that, that, that Europe as a geopolitical actor should be should be working together. I have a bit of an opposing uh, view or information on this. Um, uh, I think we should not underestimate the voter and people within within the European Union or or anywhere actually, because uh, the study that I quoted also showed that that people knew about the geopolitical advantages, and that knowledge about this is is um, now reaching um, normal people and voters. I also think that um, what is happening with the Russian and Chinese vaccine in the Western Balkans right now contributes to to uh, people perceiving what is happening. Um, people are not dumb. They see what China is doing there, I believe. You know, it's not like, oh, thank you, China. Uh, we don't have to donate vaccinations to the region if you do it. It's like, hey, what interest do they have to do that? You know, so people become a little bit distrustful of, 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 of these things and they are aware that it, it would be um, it would be an advantage. But um, and, and we're always talking about the narrative and how the EU needs a new narrative and this and that. And sometimes I feel like everything we work on is the new narrative. Um, but um, what is actually missing is um, something that is binding on the member states. So you're doing a new Western Balkan strategy here and you're doing a new uh, motion in parliament there. But what's, what happens then? Nothing. Nothing. Why? Because it, it's not binding on the member states. Nobody has the duty to do anything. So if it was um, structured differently, like, I don't know, PESCO, for example, where the member states all have the obligation to do this or that within a certain time frame, you know, if you would organize it in, in that way. Uh, and, and give some kind of a consequence to if you not do what you said, then I think we would make um, uh, more progress uh, in, in, in this area, at least with fixing smaller things that, uh, but that greatly affect the quality of life in the Western Balkans, like the topic of air pollution, for example, is not something that the European Union cannot fix within uh, a few years in the Western Balkans. You know, technically, also in terms of money, this is not something that is totally out of this world to achieve. 
it's something somebody has to do and it would be better if the member states would would um step up here and and actually put the label on it and say like i don't know hungary austria um czech republic and somewhere else in the neighborhood fix this one thing in these countries because we are their neighbors we're their friends it is in our interest that for example the train connections are faster between here and there uh, and we're all one europe you know um if we do it from from european funds and with uh, papers from the european commission blah, blah blah it also gets done at some point but nobody did it nobody claims the the the, the success and then we're back at the PR problem. Indeed, I mean, do, do you think there's an opportunity that something might change here now? I mean, later this year, we will have uh, elections in Germany, of course. Uh, next year, we've got the presidentials in France. Um, and we have a new uh, president in the White House. Obviously, America will have a different role in, in the Balkans than previously. Um, from July onwards, uh, Slovenia takes the presidency of the European Council and it has pledged to put the Western Balkans back on the agenda. Uh, is there any optimism from your side of whether you know, there could be a change in this respect? Um, oh, as Mina, well, you're rolling your yes. eyes. <laughs> I think there's uh, a lot of optimism. There's a lot of optimism, but also a lot of room for pessimism as well. So it's up to us to which side are we going to lean and, and in which direction we're going to put in the work. I wasn't like saying that the people don't understand that there was going on. It's just that they don't, they are not emotionally as connected as the topics of domestic politics because it's domestic politics in the, in the EU member state that's actually leading the process. It's not the parliament or uh, anything else. It's, it's the voters of the ruling parties. And we need to reach those people uh, in, a, in, a, in a different kind of way. And it's not just about the narrative. I'm uh, you. It's a complex region. For example, right now, we, we are missing the fact that we don't have the vaccines here yet, here in Bosnia, for example, or in other countries in the region, uh, by actually creating conflicts that are also ethnical, like with the situation in Mostar, it's out of control. We are getting threats as liberal, the only liberal party, because we didn't support either candidate. And then the Croat won, and then they called us traitors, and then... Yeah, it, we could have had a Bosniak president and we say, OK, but we have one Croat and one Bosniak councilwoman. Why should any of them support one or the other? Because we don't support nationalist politics. And then you have this whole mess and all the people are outraged. They don't care about the pollution. They don't even care about the vaccines. They are just like hitting, hitting Nasha Stranka all the day. So um, and that's narrative control. It's not like even that the people actually want to do that. Uh, I've been doing a research paper that's going to come out uh, with the Project Polska on um, on actually the conspiracy theories, and we always look at the large conspiracy theories, the ones that are like global and anti-vax, the QAnon and, and stuff like that. But there are always tiny conspiracy theories going on in our own backyards. They're like really small stories that people create that actually influence people and that create the narrative. And right now, uh, the narrative in the Western Balkans is still pretty a bit much anti-EU than it was like a year ago or two years ago. And it's like, okay, we don't need the EU. And and then inside the EU, you need that binding element, like Teresa said. And it's not just like having people put out statements. It's it's about using memes, using different kinds of means of of communicating following the narratives on social media, controlling them, having groups like 
it's it's a whole strategy and there are people who are actually doing that they're doing that for far right groups because they are very skilled at that you look at far right narratives they're amazing conspiracy theory narratives they're spread so fast they are so detailed they're so structured we should we could actually learn something from them not the, the bad things but the good things in terms of communicating the ideas we are still pretty much old school in terms of communication as, as, as liberals and as liberal politicians, I think we should just start to think outside. Um, reasons for optimism. I think um, the, the, the lack of alternative, um, you know, um, we have to be optimistic about this because we have to get this done in a way that that is sustainable in the future. You know, we have to organize um, our our union and its cohesion and our neighborhood and the relationships with it in a way that that allows for us to do other things because it's blocking capacities of the European Union if we always deal with this are we going to do it this way or that way thing with this actually compared to many other things small issue you know this is not about a lot of people it's like 70 million people in the Western Balkans right now uh, in the states that are applying uh, to become uh, European Union members, this is not, I don't know, I think it's not even the population of the Netherlands or something, you know, it's like, it's small, you know, in, in, in most of the countries, um, but but it's it, it takes up, it, it's easy to instrumentalize, uh, it's a good way of distracting from other issues. Um, if we don't get this done soon and get it done well, um, we're, we're taking something away from our capacities. And then this, this um, I mean, the European Union officials have often said that we want to play a bigger role on the global stage. And this is just not possible if we cannot deal with our own backyard, you know? And we will not be taken seriously if we cannot deal with our own backyard. So uh, a lot of these things um, are really connected to each other and and I believe it is um, an opportunity now. It is a time of opportunity. Um, German, I mean, Germany having the high representative in, in, in Bosnia uh, now, I mean, this, this was also a signal that, that Germany um, will remain uh, an important actor in the region. Um, Joe Biden got elected. He knows actually not only where the Western Balkans are, but also knows about uh, their history and, and their political situation. Um, Slovenia has the presidency, you know, we, we have, even though there are some European Union members that um, still have governments that oppose this enlargement, it, if everybody else would be behind it to fix this problem now, um, they wouldn't really have a lot of ground to stand on blocking it and moving on to other issues. So it's really a lack of engagement of all the actors that are in favor of it and who could do something about it. And um, not not it's not about France blocking a vote or something because if 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 France was the only one and everything else um, I mean we could present the solution to everything else you know um, then it wouldn't be a problem and if voters could see and trust into the application of European Union values inside the European Union and also in our relationships with other countries. Um, they wouldn't have to fear so much that the values um, don't apply to new members then and uh, therefore uh, cause harm to the whole of the union. So I say we don't really have a choice. We have to be optimistic and we have to get our act together soon. Yasmina, any reasons for optimism? 
Well, yes, I think that the one that Theresa said, like lack of <laughs> option B or option C or, or, or any good op- other option is, is, is a very good reason. But also, I think the young people in the Western Balkans, they are the main reason for, for optimism because they always turn to the EU when looking for new opportunities, when looking for uh, education opportunities. Uh, there aren't many, even in like in in uh, in authoritarian governments like Serbia, the young people they don't migrate that much to Russia or China. They all tend to either go to the EU for and study to study abroad for an exchange semester and everything else. So they do feel drawn to these uh, values internally, and they are stuck within a narrative. I've I've made a point uh, after in this research paper that is going to come out how the the conspiracy theorists uh, ins- create a narrative where they actually impose a binary situation on people where they have to pick one side or the other they cannot be rational about things and they actually target this moderate middle to actually choose a side because they are either going to be this or that it's a black and white situation they create a fabricated black and white situation that's what's being done here with mini narratives so even though people are actually emotionally drawn to the EU uh, the politics the domestic politics in the western balkan creates creates a um, kind of a situation where the, the young people feel like they need to be more patriotic than the other one and stuff like that and they forget about actually, what actually actually want and that's a country that is based on EU values and European values a democracy, uh, open borders, equal opportunities and all the other liberal values, they actually do want that. It's just that this patriotism pro-against uh, situation that's been fabricated into the narrative just triggers them into reacting and it's not just the, their fault it's, it's manipulation and, and I think we should pay more attention to that in any country not just the Western Balkan but also the, the EU member states. I think, I think you're absolutely right and I think that's very I think that's worthy of its uh, of its own discussion uh, perhaps I will pitch this for a future future episode of the podcast as you say the future generations uh, uh, will have a strong role to play in this, so it's obviously very good for them to um, be actively involved. Um, I will take this opportunity uh, to close this discussion today. Uh, we could happily go on until the evening, I'm very sure, but uh, I'd like to thank Teresa and Yasmina for joining me today. Um, very interesting reports, very interesting discussions, much more to follow. Um, so thank you for the discussion and I look forward to speaking to you both again very soon. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for having us. It was an interesting discussion and I had a lot of fun. (laughs) Thank you. Me too. Thanks for the invite.